to remain standing for the reading of God's Word as we continue our consideration of 1 Peter, the Apostle Peter's first epistle. And this evening we're going to focus, we are moving along at uh, Presbyterian speed, nice and slow, but there's so much here in this passage tonight. We are going to consider 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. I'm going to read verses 3 through 9 to remind us of the fuller context here, but our focus will be especially on verses 6 through 9. So let us hear God's holy word, 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Dear friends, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Let's pray for God to bless the proclamation of his word. Our gracious Lord and Father in heaven, your word tells us that the joy of the Lord shall be our strength. We pray that we might experience your joy this evening as we consider this glorious portion of Holy Scripture. We pray that the unfolding of your words would give light to our souls. We ask, O Lord, that you would open our minds and our hearts to behold wondrous things from your word. And we pray that you would feed our souls through this portion of your word. We ask that this, uh, the, these truths from your word that we consider this evening uh, would indeed be spiritual milk to those who need the milk of your word. May it be spiritual meat to those who need the meat of your word. And may it be manna to all of us. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you would grant me grace to faithfully declare your word this evening and give us faithfulness in receiving your word and taking it to our hearts and into our souls by your spirit. We ask these things in Christ's name and all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. title of my sermon this evening is A Tested Faith, A Joyful Heart. And there is so much in this passage that we're considering tonight that, uh, that I f- uh, figured instead of uh, uh, pulling an Apostle Paul and detaining you all until midnight, um, that I would break this up into several sermons. Well, dear ones, the Christian life is often misrepresented today. What I mean is that some seem to incorrectly represent the Christian life as a life of constant thrills and unending spiritual and emotional highs. The Christian life is presented as a victorious life, a life of constant, unbroken onwards and upwards, if you will. 
From this point of view, the Christian seems to be presented as a person who lives on a higher spiritual and emotional plane of existence as compared to the ordinary mortal. Professing believers who lean towards this view tend to look down upon Christians who shed tears of sorrow or who experience real suffering, real struggles, real grief in their lives as being somehow unspiritual. The suffering and sorrowful and grieving Christian seems to be viewed by them as a Christian who is missing out on the so-called victorious Christian life. But on the other extreme, uh, there are uh, others who appear to incorrectly believe that the Christian life is ordinarily to be viewed as a life of unending suffering, struggle, tedium, and drudgery. Professing believers who lean towards this view tend to look upon Christians who are openly joyful about their faith as being, well, somewhat superficial, perhaps overly emotional. It seems that for these folks, being a sourpuss seems to be a prerequisite for being spiritual. And the most faithful and mature Christians seem to be viewed as those professing believers who are stiff as a board and who wear a constant scowl on their faces. Believers of this persuasion err by either ignoring or overlooking the fact that the true Christian has a deep-seated peace and an exuberant joy in the heart which the unsaved person can never experience, apart, of course, from turning to Christ in true faith and repentance. This inexpressible joy and peace comes from a living relationship with the living Savior, the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. And it is a peace and a joy which can endure through grievous trials and flourish even in the midst of great suffering. In contrast to these two extreme and erroneous views of the Christian life, and I know I've presented them in their most extreme uh, forms, but in contrast to these extremities in viewing the Christian life is, of course, the biblical view. In particular, the biblical view of the Christian life as presented here by St. Peter the Apostle. And remember that Peter the Apostle in this portion of Scripture is addressing a group of harassed Christians living in Asia Minor, Christians who faced the threat, the very real threat, of severe persecution for their Christian faith. The biblical view of the Christian life avoids the extremes of these two misrepresentations of the Christian life that I uh, explained. On the one hand, as Peter makes clear in this epistle, Scripture recognizes that genuine born-again Christians can and often do experience many sufferings and trials of various sorts, including the fiery trial of persecution. Real Christians face sorrow too. Real Christians suffer too. Real Christians grieve too. And it is not an unspiritual thing to experience sorrow, suffering, grief, or trials of various sorts. On the other hand, Scripture also teaches that true believers have been blessed with every blessing in the heavenly places, that we who are true believers have been blessed with the spiritual resources to endure through the trials and sorrows and griefs of life in this fallen, sin-cursed world. Because of the presence of the resurrected Christ in our lives, we who by God's grace are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have implanted within our souls an inexpressible and glorious joy. 
a joy which enables us to overcome as we face the trials which God in his divine providence decrees and permits to come into our lives. So friends, the biblical picture of the Christian life as presented to us here in this passage of 1 Peter is very realistic, but it's also incredibly hopeful. It tells us, Peter is telling us, or the Holy Spirit, I should say, through Peter is telling us that the Christian life is a life of joy in the midst of trials and sorrows, even as it is one of trials and sorrows in the midst of joy. There is a paradox of, to the Christian life that Peter touches upon in this passage for this evening. Here in our passage for this Lord's Day evening, as Peter addresses his original first century readers, he encourages them, as the Holy Spirit through Peter encourages us and the church in all ages, to put our main focus on the spiritual blessings that we have already received in Christ and the blessings of our inheritance of final salvation, which we shall receive in the future, so that we might have a living hope in the present as we face trying circumstances. In this passage, where the Apostle Peter addresses the joys and the trials of the Christian life, the Holy Spirit reminds us of the paradoxical truth that a tested faith and a joyful heart can coexist. And so this Lord's Day evening, we will focus particularly on the Christian's joy. We'll talk more about the Christian's trials and testing on the next Lord's Day. But this evening, I want us to focus on the Christian's joy. In particular, we will focus first on the character of the Christian's joy. Then we will focus on the reason for the Christian's joy. And finally, the strength of the Christian's joy. So let's dive into our passage, beloved, and let's first of all consider the character of the Christian's joy, the character of the Christian's joy. This is the first point on your sermon outline. After the opening doxology, uh, where Peter blesses and praises the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, who in great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the historic bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and to an eternal inheritance, Peter goes on to say, in this you rejoice. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Peter knows those to whom he is writing. He knows that they have faced trials. They have faced sorrows. They need comfort. They need encouragement. And he reminds them, notice he says, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Now, when you're going through a particularly painful or grievous or difficult uh, time in life, oftentimes those sorrowful times can seem to be so lengthy. But Peter encourages us to take the eternal perspective. From the standpoint of eternity, our trials and struggles and sufferings in this life, though very real and at the time very pressing, nonetheless, in the light of eternity, they are just for a little while. But they are grievous. He says, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's speaking about Christ's second coming, his 
revelation, his, uh, his uh, appearing. And then he goes on to say in verse 8, Though you have not seen him, you have not seen Christ, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Verse 6, Peter says, in this you rejoice. Uh, it is translated uh, in, a, in a stronger way in the New King James Version as, in this you greatly rejoice. This is not just uh, you know, a, an ordinary kind of rejoicing. This is a great rejoicing. This translation is a translation of the Greek word agaliasthai. The Bible scholar Norman Hillier says that the rejoicing which is expressed by this New Testament Greek verb is always a jubilant and thankful exaltation for some divine action. A jubilant and thankful exaltation. Not just a yay, that's great, but an exaltation, a jubilant one. This word is also translated as rejoice in verse 8, which speaks of the believer as rejoicing with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Inexpressible joy. Peter seeks to express the inexpressible here in this passage. The joy that the Spirit has implanted within the soul of his children is a joy that at one level is inexpressible. We do seek to express it in our prayers, in our praises, as we sing joyful songs and psalms to the Lord. But at the deeper level, this joy cannot be expressed even by those glorious forms of expression. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 13, this word is translated in, again, in the New King James Version as exceeding joy. Believer, because of what Christ has done for us and for our salvation, and because of what He has done in our lives, showing His mercy to us, forgiving our sins, renewing us, giving us a living, everlasting hope, we ought to have a great and indescribable joy. And you can have a, an inexpressible and indescribable joy even if in terms of your personality you are a reserved person. That's okay. You don't have to be one of these bubbly individuals that goes around saying, praise the Lord, every other sentence. And there's nothing wrong with that, by the way, if you are of, uh, have that kind of personality. Isn't it wonderful that the Lord saves uh, individuals, that his people include all different personality types? But whatever your personality type may be, whether you're an introvert or an extrovert, whether you're gregarious or reserved, whatever the case may be, if you are in Christ, the Spirit has implanted within your soul a joy that cannot be expressed because it is a joy that is founded upon Christ. It is a joy that is grounded in the gospel, the good news of your eternal salvation in Christ. And so it is expressed by Peter here in verse 8 as a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Now, what is this term inexpressible? Again, according to Hillier, Hillier, Dr. Hillier, this word means not capable of human description or calculation. Beloved, the reason that our joy is inexpressible and full of glory the reason that it is not capable of human description or calculation is because it is not of human 
origin. Rather, it is from above. It is a gift of God. You know, our happy, it's interesting, happiness depends, as the word suggests, upon, it depends upon happenstance. You know, I think of that song, oh, what a beautiful morning, oh, what a beautiful day, I've got a wonderful feeling, everything's going my way. And it's, it's easy to feel happy, to feel emotionally lifted up when everything's going your way. You're healthy, uh, you're comfortable, you're financially set and all of that. But what happens when you lose your job or when you get that cancer diagnosis? What happens when that trial comes into your life? The joy that we believers experience in Christ is a joy that goes deeper than the mere outward circumstances, the happenstances of our daily lives. It's not something that we can work up within ourselves. It's not something that outward circumstances can control. It is from above. It is a gift of God. To try to paraphrase Peter's expression here into modern lingo, the joy that we believers experience in Christ is a joy that is out of this world. And it is out of this world because the source and origin of our joy is not of this world. It is found in Christ and given to us as a gift of God through Christ. Now, perhaps you're wondering what could produce such deep and rich joy in the souls of believers. Well, you will find the answer to that question in verse 6, where Peter tells us the reason for the Christian's joy. And that brings me to my next main point in your outline, the reason for the Christian's joy. Verse 6, Peter writes, in this you rejoice. In this you rejoice. Now, as, as often is the case, Bible scholars debate about what the in this means. Bible scholars have disagreements about what the in this is to which Peter refers. Some suggest that in this would be better translated as in whom, referring, of course, to God, meaning that we rejoice in God. If that is the case, then Peter is saying that we believers rejoice because of God and in Him. Others suggest that it would be better understood and translated as in which, meaning in which time. If that is the case, then Peter is saying that we will rejoice greatly at the final day when we experience the final consummation of our salvation. Now, friends, while it is certainly true that as Christians we rejoice in God and that we will rejoice greatly at the last day when Christ returns, nevertheless, the context of this passage appears to support in this as the best translation, and in this, in the sense in which circumstance, in which circumstance you rejoice. What's Peter talking about? Well, what Peter seems to be saying is that we rejoice because of the blessings of salvation, which we've already received, as well as because of the blessing of final, ultimate salvation, which we shall receive on that final day. The blessings which Peter has already uh, described in his opening doxology in verses 3 through 5. The certainty of receiving this final consummated salvation and our security in that salvation is the reason why we rejoice with joy inexpressible at this present time and why we rejoice even in the midst of our trials. Remember, Peter 
has already, meant, has already told us uh, in his opening doxology that we have an inheritance awaiting us and we are being kept for that inheritance. Our eternal inheritance, our eternal salvation, the final consummation of salvation, which is described by Peter as our inheritance. How has it been described? It is described in verse 4 as imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. And so this, my friends, this, my friends, is the reason for the Christian's joy, because our salvation, our inheritance, is firm and secure, unfading, kept in heaven for us. Beloved, by way of application, these truths uh, revealed uh, here in this passage reinforce the biblical teaching that a Christian can enjoy in this present age a full and infallible assurance of salvation. After all, how could we believers experience such joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory if our salvation was always in question or if we could not be fully assured of our eternal salvation? If you're always in doubt about whether or not you're in a state of grace, if you're always living in doubt of whether God is, is angry with you or whether you are in Christ and in the favor of God, that, that can rob you of joy. The praise be to God, the scriptures teach that we who rest upon Christ, who cling to Christ, trusting him alone for salvation from sin can be fully assured of our salvation. Dear listener, do you, do you know this joy inexpressible and full of glory that Peter describes here? Do you have a full and infallible assurance of your salvation? If you have doubts about your salvation, take your doubts to the Lord. Jesus is very kind and, and welcoming. Remember how he treated doubting Thomas. Yes, he rebuked Thomas at one level, but he also welcomed Thomas. And he welcomes us if you struggle with, uh, with doubt, if you struggle with assurance of salvation, turn to Christ. He welcomes you. He welcomes you. And trust in Him with repentant faith and be assured that you are forgiven for Jesus' sake. Believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. That's God's promise. And God does not go back on His promises. God's promises don't contain fine print. That's hard to uh, hard to discern. God speaks his word. He means what he says. He says what he means. Believe in him. Repent and believe in him tonight. But finally, beloved, we note here, we consider here, the strength of the Christian's joy. This is my final point in your outline. The strength of the Christian's joy. This is a joy that endures in spite of and even in the midst of trials. This is the irony, and the, not the irony, but the paradox of the Christian life. Again, Peter writes, in this you rejoice, this, this good news that, that your inheritance is being kept for you in heaven and you are being guarded through faith for that final salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, Though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. The grief is real. You've been grieved. Not, oh, well, 
grief tempted you, but you're living the victorious Christian life. You're beyond grief. No, you've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We'll focus more on the testing of our faith on the next Lord's Day evening, but again, notice the strength of the Christian's joy here as brought out in this passage. Though you have not seen him, you love him. We walk by faith, not by sight. But the the things of faith, the things that we grasp and believe in, are real. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. But those things not seen are realities. Christ is real. The spiritual realm is real. The fact of our salvation is real and can be relied upon. And then it goes on to say, though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. And what does this faith, uh, which is suffused with joy, lead to? Obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And here, again, the salvation he has in view is salvation in the broader, final, consummated sense, it would seem. The strength of the Christian's joy, beloved, is that it is a joy that endures in spite of and even in the midst of sorrows and trials. And our lives are filled with sorrows and trials. Different degrees, different, uh, different forms of intensity. But we live in a fallen, sin-cursed world. We face what, the common curse. We a believers experience, along with our unbelieving neighbors, we experience the effects of the common curse. But we have hope, a hope that the unbeliever cannot even imagine. Oh, dear believer in Christ, it is because you look forward with joy to receiving final salvation on that final day when Christ returns that you can even now rejoice in spite of and even in the midst of your trials. In commenting on verse 6, the Bible scholar, and I quote him often, but he's got a very helpful commentary, Dr. I. Howard Marshall, He says that Peter's point is then not a contrast between present suffering and future fullness of joy, but rather the paradox of greatly rejoicing now despite suffering. We have the first fruits of the age to come. We experience a foretaste in the present time of that final age to come. By the grace of God, Our joy in the Lord will endure through the fiery trials of this life as we walk in that joy through faith in Christ and as we strive to maintain a clear conscience before the Lord. As a biblical example of this kind of joy that was experienced even in the midst of suffering and trial, consider uh, Paul and Silas in Acts chapter 16. Remember Paul and Silas were in the city of Philippi? And uh, they got in trouble with the authorities. They were beaten, and they were put in prison in chains and probably expecting to be executed the next day. How did they respond to that brutal treatment that they had received from the Roman government there? Now, if I were in their shoes or their sandals, my natural inclination, I think the natural inclination would be to grumble, to complain, to moan and groan. After all, these men were 
probably in a lot of pain, physical pain from the brutal beating that they had received. But turn with me, if you would, to Acts 16. Let me read verses 22 through 25. Acts chapter 16, and we'll wrap things up in a few minutes, but just want to point this out. Acts chapter 16, verses 22 through 25. This kind of sets the context here. It says, The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Not a comfortable way uh, to spend the night. But notice verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were doing what? Moaning and groaning and complaining and whining. No. They were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. The prisoners were listening to them. Their joy in the midst of this trial that they were undergoing, this persecution that they had undergone, this joy must have been a powerful witness to the prisoners who heard them singing and praying, and also, no doubt, to the Philippian jailer who is marvelously converted later on in this passage. It was that joy inexpressible and filled with glory that empowered and strengthened Paul and Silas to be calm, to have peace of heart in spite of the, the throbbing pain that no doubt their bodies uh, were enduring as they were recovering uh, from that brutal beating that they had received. The joy of the Lord is our strength. And the strength of the Christian's joy is that firm and sure and certain eternal hope that we have in Christ because of the gospel. But while it is possible for us, excuse me, while it is not possible for us as believers to lose our salvation, it is possible to lose the joy of our salvation. And there's many ways that we can lose the joy of our salvation. We can lose the joy of our salvation through neglecting the means of grace, neglecting the word, neglecting prayer, neglecting fellowship in, in the church and so forth. We can lose the joy of our salvation uh, through unrepentant sin, through hardness of heart, through failing to maintain a clear conscience and so forth. And I think the biblical example of a believer who for a time, lost the joy of his salvation. Think about King David. King David, in his uh, grievous sin of falling into the sin of adultery with Bathsheba and arranging for Bathsheba's husband to be murdered on the uh, front lines of battle. And uh, David continued hardened and un impenitent in that sin for a time. But we read in his psalm of repentance, Psalm 51, he prays in Psalm 51, verse 12, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. When David fell into such grievous, serious sin, he did not lose his salvation. He was not cast out of the kingdom, but he did lose the joy of his salvation. And in his prayer of repentance, he says, Lord, restore to me 
the joy of your salvation. His salvation was the source of joy itself. I take that to mean that David, because of his sinfulness, was doubting. Uh, am I really uh, saved? Am I really uh, in, in favor with the Lord? And this is a warning to us. Again, while our salvation is secure, we can lose the joy of our salvation. And so, dear ones, let us make every effort to obtain and maintain, by the grace of God, the joy of our salvation. Let us be often in the Word. Let us meditate often on the promises of the gospel, feeding our souls with those wonderful promises. Let us often avail ourselves of the comfort that comes to us through the sacrament of the Holy Supper. Let us diligently use the God-ordained means of grace, the Word and the sacraments and prayer. And let us often search our consciences, confessing our sins in repentant humility and thus striving to maintain a clear conscience before the Lord. After all, the joy of the Lord is that which gives us strength for the trials that we face as pilgrims of Christ, making our way through this present evil age. Dear friends, may the joy of the Lord be your strength, and may you experience a joyful heart, even when your faith is tested. Amen. Let's pray.